Romans chapter 2 this morning. I think probably the easiest way to dive into this is just let me read what Paul says. And you follow along. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And let me tell you, as we start out, this is a diatribe. You know what a diatribe is? You probably do, if, even if you don't know what to call it. It's when you set up an imaginary person and you have an argument with that person. You, 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 you work out your ideals, you know. So you're arguing in your mind uh, with an imaginary person who fits certain criteria. Uh, every time I take one of those tests to find your strengths and weaknesses, you know, I, I tend to come out high on the strategy side and I find that maybe one of the reasons for that is I do this all the time. I'm constantly arguing with myself. Uh, well, with my imaginary other person, you know. I set up scenarios and, and I try, when I'm looking for a logical way through something, I have arguments in my head with an imaginary opponent who's marshalling all the objections. And I keep running down those trails until I've run out of objections. And then I think I've got it all right. And that's when I come out with it. So <laughs> I may not have it all right, but I think I do anyway. Well, that's a diatribe. And this second chapter is one of those rhetorical tools. Paul has set up an imaginary person. And that person, he is going to engage in an argument. And the person that he set up here is this person who says, you know what, I've got my act together. I follow the rules. I keep the law. I, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not like those pagans that he talked about in chapter 1. So listen to him, chapter 2. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, 
and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But if you bear the name Jew, and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keep the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now in these opening chapters of Romans, Paul is bringing to us three classes of people. He starts out by talking about those who are just totally out there. They have no moral law that governs them. They're not a cultured people. They are pagans in every sense of the word. And they're the ones he describes in chapter 1 in some detail. Then in chapter 2, he begins to talk about people who have moral and ethical values. Now, a lot of the commentators have debated who is he addressing in chapter 2. And there is a good division among them. Is he talking to Gentiles who have higher moral standards than the average person? Or is he speaking already only to Jews? My thought is, and some of the commentators land here as well, that he is predominantly thinking of cultured Gentiles, Romans, who have a higher moral standard than average, because he's writing to the church. And the church in Rome includes a lot of Gentiles, a lot of God-fearing Gentiles who had already embraced Judaism, and quite a number of Jews. And that he is moving through these categories of people so that chapter 2 is talking about people who have a little higher standard of value and culture than perhaps the pagans we find in chapter 1. But he's not homing in yet on the Jews as an ethnic 
group, descendant of Abraham, recipients of the Ten Commandments. Another question that commentators have asked is, is he talking to believers or to unbelievers in chapter 2? And as we said at the outset, this is a diatribe. He has made up a person. Oh man, whoever you are, oh man. I think largely his focus is to the unbeliever, because that's the way this section reads. But he's writing the letter to the church. And as someone wisely said, the simplest way to read this chapter is, if the shoe fits, wear it. If you're that oh man, or oh woman, if you're that person, then own up to it. He has in mind, I think, cultured Gentiles who have risen to a higher standard of living. And there were some. There was one Roman philosopher who actually wrote open letters to Nero in the early days of Nero's reign, suggesting that Nero could be the guy that transformed Rome, that he could institute moral standards and higher values than were common in the day. Now, Nero's craziness, and we always think of him as the guy that, you know, crucified Christians on crosses and coated them with paraffin and made human torches and did all kinds of horrible things. He kind of went nuts at the end of his reign. In fact, he murdered his own mother so that there would be no contestant for the throne. But in the early days of his reign, he was not such a a, a ridiculously terrible person. He actually had some common sense, and maybe more so than many of his time. And this Roman philosopher wrote open letters to him suggesting you can encourage people to, to honor marriage, to Stop this uh, immorality that's rampant, to stop going after fleshly indulgence, to, to develop a kind of culture that's a cut above what we're experiencing. There was another philosopher of the time, a Greek philosopher, Epictetus, that had lived before, but his writings were still uh, somewhat popular. And Epictetus said that we have a conscience, and the conscience is intended to guide us, and we need to pay attention to it. And we need to learn to deny the flesh, and we need to learn to uh, value discipline and come to a level of life that embraces the things that are good and humanly altruistic and, and of significance. Even to the denial of your own appetites or desires, you need to live at a higher moral plane, he said. One of the problems with Epictetus was he said, you are your own judge as to what those higher values are. Does that sound familiar? You know, we didn't invent all this stuff. (laughs) Situational ethics was true 100 years before Christ among the philosophers. But Paul is writing to these people, people who say, you know what, I've got my act together. I'm I'm doing pretty well here. Later on, we're going to talk next week and the week after, specifically about the Jews themselves, those special people that receive the revelation from God. But today we're in the middle ground. Now, my message this morning is kind of unusual. I, I, I don't like alliteration. I never do well with that. People that have three C's or three G's or you know four F's or five whatever, I don't do well with that. And, and I seldom have any 
logical balance to my outlines. I just put them down the way I see them. But today we have three threes. It just came out that way, and I thought, okay, we'll run with it. So three classes of human morality, three dangerously false assumptions. And I want to land in number two for a little bit here. Because when we read chapter two, it brings out some dangerously false assumptions that people often make. And the first one is that we gain favor with God when we subscribe to a moral code that lifts us above being pagans and savages. It's, it's, the, it's the attitude that says, I'm a church member, or I belong to the lodge, or I believe in the rule of law, and I have a high moral code. And we think that that mere association, I've adopted this, and, and this is the life that I live, is going to win us favor with God, because after all, we're not like those other people. We don't live like they do. We live on a higher plane. We have better values. Our morality is of a purer nature. Just look at us. We're much better than the rest of the world. Kind of the concept of the, the ugly American, you know. <laughs> After all the imperialists died out, we came on the scene. And, and uh, you know, we're kind of uh, the, the protectors of the world. And we're the ones that know how everything should be. And, and we're going to kind of spread it around and make everything right. It's that kind of a mentality that says, I, I'm there. And, and I am capable of assessing the situation. And God is going to treat me with favor because I'm a cut above. Paul starts out by saying, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, what is Paul talking about, really? He's been talking in chapter 1 about these pagans, these idolaters, these, uh, the, you know, this gay and lesbian lifestyle that we find in chapter 1, uh, these slanderers, these covenant breakers. You know, and is he really saying to this group of people, you do the very same sins exactly? I don't think so. He's not accusing them of being murderers and rapists and idolaters and, and homosexuals. He's not making that accusation necessarily. Outwardly. But what he's saying is that in your heart and in other subtle ways, you practice the same kinds of behaviors. You just have yours all cleaned up and dressed up so much that frequently you don't even recognize it. One of the best passages in the scripture on dealing with judging others is Jesus' own Sermon on the Mount. Let me read you the first part of chapter 7. You can turn there if you like. It's Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus is talking about judging, and this is what he says. Do not judge, lest you be judged. 
For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye. Behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus has just finished a section in his Sermon on the Mount where he has said, if you hate your brother, you have murder in your heart. If you lust for another person, you have adultery in your heart. If you have to swear a bunch of oaths and sign a bunch of stuff for your word to be valid, you really have lying in your heart because your yes ought to be sufficient or your no ought to be sufficient. You ought to be able to just say what you mean and people should be able to take your word. So Jesus has kind of gotten beneath the surface of the outward behavior to the root of the matter that's in the heart. And then he comes to this section on judgment, and it's, it, it's hyperbole in the extreme. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to have a log in your eye and still be living. You know? but, but imagine it. Will you see the caricature? Here's a person with a little grain of sand in their eye, or an eyelash, or a little piece of soot, and their eye's watering and they can't get it open, you know, and you're going to help them, because they're just having a tough time. And you've got this log in your eye, and it's about this long. How are you going to do that? You can't get near enough to them in the first place. Secondly, you can't see. I mean, if you've got a log in one eye, forget the fact that the other one's open, it's probably looking over there. There's no way you can perform this delicate task. Jesus is, is making a mockery, but he's making a point. He says, you're quick to find fault in someone else, a little picky thing, and you do not recognize that you've got this log in your face that's blinding you. And what's even more subtle is the speck, the splinter in the brother's eye probably came from the same log. Because here's the kicker. You and I have a tendency to see in others what we most dislike about ourselves in secret. When other people are out doing openly what we think we have so well covered, they actually embarrass us and it's irritating because they are putting on public display our sins. We are most prone to find fault where we have it. And it's absolutely true. Just think about it for a minute. And then we get to the point of, do I have the same kinds of sin? Years ago I read a sermon by John Wesley on the Sermon on the Mount. And he took each one of these points of the Ten Commandments and he carried them to the nth degree. And it opened my eyes then to a lot of things. The Ten Commandments, one of them says, Thou shalt not steal. And you say, I have never shoplifted in my life. I've never taken anything out of a store without paying for it. Or you say, I have never broken into anyone's car 
and taken their stuff. Or I've never broken into anyone's house and robbed their home while they were gone. I, have not, I am not a thief. I have never done that. Wesley was writing in the early 1700s. And he started listing things like, have you ever borrowed a tool from a neighbor that you did not return in a timely fashion? You have robbed your neighbor of the use of his own property. You have stolen from him. Have you ever promised to work for a man for a day and cut your labor short? You have robbed the man of his time. Have you shown up late for an obligation and made other people wait for you? You have stolen their time by your tardiness. You are a thief. When I first started working in construction, it was 1972, and I was in West Palm Beach, Florida, and I took a job in a commercial construction uh, project that um, was offered me by a man in our church. He was the foreman, and I agreed to work for two dollars and a quarter an hour. Well, that was 1972. Carpenters were making four dollars an hour, and the foreman was making seven dollars an hour. So two dollars and a quarter wasn't bad money in one sense, but it wasn't union scale. And there were many union jobs in the area. In fact, I came to find out later the contractor was supposed to be using union labor on that job. Don't ask me how we discovered that. You can use your imagination. But uh, I was working for substantially below the going union wage. I think union wage for a laborer in those days was 11 or $12 an hour. And that was more than our foreman was making. And I started getting irritated. I'm out there slaving in the hot sun, sweating bullets in the middle of Florida. You know, it's 100 degrees and 90% humidity. And, and I'm just having a time. And I'm getting sunburned and all kinds of bad things are happening to me. And I'm making two and a quarter an hour, and I started griping about it. And this foreman, who was an old country boy from West Virginia, uh, bar-hopping bar country boy with the boots, and, you know, he, he got converted. He went to country gospel music and stopped bar-hopping, but the, that was his culture, you know, just down-home spun. And one day he said, Paul, he said, um, did you agree to work for the boss? I said, yeah. He said, when you signed up, did you know what you were going to get paid? And I said, yeah. He said, so you agreed to work, and he agreed to pay you two and a quarter, and you said that was fine. Yeah. He says, well, you owe the man an hour's work for your two and a quarter. And you need to stop complaining about it. Because that's what you agreed to do. He said, you agreed to work, give him your best of your body and your life for one hour, and he agreed to give you two and a quarter in exchange for it, and that was your bargain. Now you need to do it. He taught me about keeping my word, and he taught me about giving the value for my agreement. 
And he was right. I didn't have to take two and a quarter. I could go try to find a job somewhere else. But if I had agreed to work for that, I ought to work for that. If I gave him less than my best effort, I was robbing from him. Another thing he taught me was, uh, his first saying was, a day's work for a day's pay. Another thing he had was, it all pays the same. I was hired as a laborer, and my assignment was to pull the nails out of the boards that we were going to pitch, because that was one of the rules. You couldn't throw boards away that had nails in them. Well, I thought I was going to be learning how to put nails in boards, not take nails out of boards, because I wanted to put things together, not not strip forms and stuff like that, you know. And so I was complaining about that one day. And Frank took me aside again. He says, you know, Paul, he said, it all pays the same. I said, what do you mean? He said, whether you're pulling nails out or putting nails in, you're getting the same amount of pay. You've got to do what you're told, and you've got to enjoy doing it, because that's what you agreed to do. We have a tendency, you know, another crew I was on, people would pad their time. They didn't have time clocks, especially on a job site. You had to write down your hours. They'd show up 10 minutes late. They'd stretch a coffee break of 15 minutes into 20. They'd take a 30-minute lunch break and make it 40. They'd stretch the afternoon break into 20 minutes instead of 15. And they'd leave as quickly as they could get off the site when we started cleaning up. And by the time the day was done, they had stolen 30 minutes of time as they marked down their, their regular day's hours. That's thieving. You're a thief. You're a thief if you rob someone of the value and the use of their own equipment because you borrowed it and didn't take it back. Wesley went down this road with every single one of the Ten Commandments. He preached about two and a half, three hours, and how would you like to have been at the end of that sermon? How do you think you'd have felt? (laughs) Man. But what does it take to break the law? If you've got a 12-inch ruler and it has 12 inches, what breaks the ruler? The fact that you broke broke it in 12 pieces or that you broke it anywhere? The scripture says if you have offended in any one point, you have broken the whole law. Because you started out with a whole ruler, ten commandments, and if you break one anywhere along the way, you've broken it all. We have a tendency to look at other people and say, I'm not like they are. And yet we're doing the same kind of thing in other subtle ways that we have rationalized. And come up with all kinds of reasons why it's okay for me to do this when in fact we have the same attitude and spirit as those who are outwardly lawbreakers. Now, I want to be quick to say there are different social consequences for sin. I mean, there is a hugely different impact socially and personally if you rape someone or if you just view pornography. There's a huge difference in the impact upon that other person and their family and your life. If you get caught, you're going to prison. Their life is damaged. 
If you look at pornography online, you may think that's a victimless crime. It's really not because somebody had to pose for those pictures and their lives are being destroyed, but that's another issue. It's, it's, it seems like it's a victimless crime. But Jesus gets to the point that the root of it is the same. And if there wasn't rule of law and, and some police officers and a, and a judge and state laws, who knows what you would really do? Because the same seed is in here. You know? So there are social consequences for the outward abuse of certain moral values that are higher than others. You can rank sin in society. But when God looks at our heart, he looks for the root of evil that lies there and the thoughts and the intents that drive us. He makes it very plain that there's no one who can say, I have not sinned in any particular way. Because if you think about all of them, at one time or another, we could sit down one-on-one and go through them, and I'll bet you find you've broken all the commandments. Everyone in the room. That's what Paul means when he says, you think you've got your act together? <laughs> when you go judging other people, you are doing the same thing. It ought to take judgment away from us, quite frankly. The second dangerously false assumption is that the mere adherence to moral law is the same as if we actually kept the law. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this is kind of like church member syndrome. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I'm an evangelical. I belong to the church. I, I, I am in this society. I've joined that club. These are our values. That's going to do me in good standing. No, it's not. Being a part of the group and, and giving verbal adherence to a set of standards does not make it true of you. Just because you're in the party, when you stand before God, you stand individually. Many people make the mistake of assuming, I've joined this church, I've become part of that religion, I've joined this club, I've embraced these values, I'm going to be okay. Paul wants us to understand from this passage, you're not going to stand as a group before God and he's not going to ask you what you thought. You're going to stand as an individual and he's going to ask you what you did or failed to do. And that's going to be the criteria. We also have a tendency to think that the practice of religious ritual and duty in the context of God's moral law will bring us special favor. All right, I joined the group, but I didn't just join the group. I mean, I go to confession. I take communion. I follow the rules. I've been baptized. You know, I attend a small group. I've been circumcised, whatever, you know, like the Jew. I, I am embracing the disciplines. I read my Bible every day. I have a prayer time and a quiet time. That's got to count for something, right? No, not necessarily. 
Uh, look at verses uh, 25 to 20. That's not right. It's probably 15 to 20. Well, never mind. Don't look at the verses because I know that's, that's the wrong reference there. First of all, it goes backwards, which is part of the problem. Ah, the circumcision at the end. Look at 27. And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is he circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew that is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. And if you'll back up just a little bit, in verse 25, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become nothing. Here's the point. All the spiritual disciplines in the world have no benefit if you're not a heart follower of God from the Spirit in obedience. You can read your Bible as faithfully as a monk. You can have a daily quiet time. You can join the church, be baptized, whatever. Pick a spiritual discipline. If your heart is not committed to God in obedience, the discipline has no value or merit at the judgment. It's a, you may as well just not bother. Because it's not going to do you any good. But if your heart is right with God, and in the Spirit you are in an attitude of obedience and following Jesus Christ, then spiritual discipline can help you grow and develop spiritually and has great value. Not because you're doing the discipline, but because you're following God and the disciplines move you in that direction. But if you're just going through the motions, Paul says, God is going to treat that circumcision like uncircumcision. It has no merit. Why go through the pain? Just quit and go live the way you want to live if your heart is not there. Because spiritual disciplines do not have value unless they are driven by a heart that is in submission and obedient to the will of God. So, those are three dangerously false assumptions. That we gain favor with God because we like the rules. That we gain favor with God because we've joined a group that likes the rules. That we gain favor with God because we have disciplines that like the rules. No, it comes down to, are you doing the rules? Are you living the life? Are you walking the walk? And if you're not, Paul says, it doesn't count. Now, there are some lessons that I think that come out of this that we need to really pay attention to. 
First of all, I'm not saying that in a culture that is based on God's law, for example, our nation was originally founded and the Constitution uh, kind of has its, its groundings, our principles of law uh, go to the Ten Commandments and the, the Judeo-Christian heritage and Blackstone and some others that embodied those in, in, in civilized cultural regulations. And our country embraced those originally. And there is benefit to a society and to a person who will keep the rules in this life. There's benefit. Just ask somebody that's been in and out of two or three or four marriages and five or six flings in between and has kids in four different states and just ask them how smooth their life runs how happy they are on a daily basis as they try to juggle all of that nonsense. That can get very complex. Uh, if you, you know, make a practice of literally stealing and indulging your flesh in all kinds of sin and addictions, you're going to have trouble. Just take God out of the equation for a moment there is certain value to living a good life, and there's certain value to a, a, a culture adopting biblical principles. We're not saying that, that just throw them out the window because we're not doing them all, every one of us, to the nth degree. There is merit there. And we'll see that a little more even next week. But there is some value to that. However, Paul's point in this passage is, it's not going to help you, the individual, when you stand before the judgment. It's going to make your life better. It's going to make your, your society better. It's going to make your environment better. You're going to be a better, happier person if you follow the principles. But it's not going to make you totally righteous when you stand before God. But there is merit there. Secondly, Romans 2, 5 to 16 seems to imply that a person could pass God's judgment if he or she did indeed obey the law of God. If you look at uh, verse 5, he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they get eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they get wrath and indignation. Now then, is Paul saying to us that it is possible to pass God's bar of judgment on the basis of a life well-lived and liberally sprinkled with good works? Is that what Paul is saying? Listen to my whole statement before you tune me out. <laughs> This is real important, because if you only get part of this, I'm going to come out like a heretic, and you're going to come out wrong. This is real important. Okay? It is possible. It is possible to be saved without coming to Jesus Christ on the basis of your meritorial life, meritorious life. It is possible. Here's all you have to do. From the instant you're born, until the moment you die, never do a single thing you shouldn't do 
in thought, word, or deed. And always do everything you ought to do in thought, word, and deed. If you can pull that off from the date of your birth to the date of your death, you can pass God's judgment and go to heaven. Don't count on it. Okay? Don't count on it. Because no one can do that. And if you doubt that that's the criteria... Look at Jesus' statement at the end of chapter 5 in Matthew. Look at it when you get home, but it's in the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 5. Jesus boils it all down to one final statement. You are therefore to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you want to try that route, God says, I'll be fair. If you can be morally perfect like I am perfect, from the date of your birth till the date of your death, without a single deviation, I'll let you go to heaven. You can, you can come into my family. If you don't think you can pass that test, I would not recommend going that route. And look at what Paul is saying. For those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality... Who can do that all the time? Who has ever done that? And he says, But for those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Paul's whole point in this is, there are standards that God has. And that's the requirements. And guess what? Nobody meets them. We all need a Savior. So don't, I'm paraphrasing here, don't get up on your high horse and say, I'm better than all those pagans over there. I don't live like that. Unless you can say in your heart, I've never stolen anything the way John Wesley described it. I've never coveted anything. I've never lusted for anyone. I have never desired to gain power and control. I've never wanted my own way. I've never wanted to be my own boss and be in charge. I've always been submitted to God. Uh, What is selfish ambition if it is not those things? We have... No room to judge. And we stand condemned even if we have adopted as a lifestyle the higher moral plane. Finally, obedience is better than sacrifice. Remember when uh, Samuel was sent to Saul? Saul had um, been told to go and wipe out everything and everybody in a certain battle. And he kept all the sheep and all the animals. And he really kept them because he wanted them. I mean, he he might have sacrificed a couple of them, but he really wanted to increase his own wealth. And Samuel goes to him. And Samuel says, why have you disobeyed God? And Saul says, I didn't disobey God. We, 
we we killed everybody. Well, he forgot to kill the king, but well, I gotta you know I gotta gloat a little bit. And and Samuel knows that 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 Saul has spared the king basically so he can gloat over the guy, and that he's spared all the animals in this scenario, and God had given very specific instructions, and and Saul says, but. I'm going to sacrifice, you know, I love the way Samuel puts it, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ear? Oh, I'm going to sacrifice those to the Lord. Oh, no, you're not, Saul. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Friends, God is looking for people who follow him from the heart and who obey his voice, and do what he says. And do you know what makes that possible? Well, he tells us in the end of the chapter. He says, But he who is a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. He's setting us up to explain being born again but he touches on it, foreshadowing right here. In order to be just before God, in order to pass the bar of judgment, in order to meet the criteria, you have to have a transformation in your life. Because you don't have what it takes. You need something else. First of all, you need forgiveness. You need the the flesh cut away. You need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to give you power and desire and passion to follow God and and the ability to obey Him. You need a new birth. The only way we can really pass muster, the only way we can meet the criteria, is if, first of all, all of our foibles are wiped away in the blood of Jesus. We have to be cleansed because we all have the stain of sin upon our lives. And then we have to be empowered by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in order to live for God lives that are obedient. Friends, part of the point in in these messages is to help us become more loving and more sensitive to people outside of Christ. And frankly, to become more loving and sensitive to people inside of Christ. And Paul's lesson for us in this chapter 2 is, not a single one of us has a right to throw a stone. Because every one of us has also offended in every point. Maybe we haven't done it outwardly. Maybe we haven't broken the criminal laws of the land. Maybe we don't deserve to be arrested and put before a jury of our peers. But we all in our hearts have failed God on every point. And whether we lacked opportunity or whether we frankly just didn't have the guts, or whether there was something in our life that kept us from being too bad, We all have the inclination, in one way or another, 
in some way. And that alone should give us enough humility to love and accept others and point them to Jesus. Because one day there is going to be a judgment and every one of us is going to stand one by one and face God. And the question won't be, did you have a quiet time? Did you read your Bible? Did you join the church? Did you get baptized? I'm speaking of unbelievers now. The question will be, did you keep the law in every respect, in all points, all of your life? And no one will be able to say yes. No one. And God forbid that anyone you or I know should be in that position. It ought to motivate us to help others be ready for that day by coming to know Jesus now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. And I pray that as we continue to delve more deeply into an understanding of who we are without you, that it will make us much more appreciative of who we have become in you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, because you, the only one who has the right to judge, came instead to die and to give your life that we might be born again and have eternal life in us. God, fill our hearts with that same love, that we might be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Loving and gracious and full of compassion to share Christ. Because hell is awful, and we've been spared, not by our doing, but by your grace. And we thank you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen.